Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Paul Dalgano. Paul was born in Aberdeen, Scotland, and came to Australia in 2010. He's a journalist and a writer. His first book was a memoir, And You May Find Yourself. And Paul is joining me today to discuss his first novel, Polly. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gundungurra people, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. It's a chance for me to take the conversations that we have on the radio and give you the expanded version, and I want to help more people discover great Australian writing. So if you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a rating, make a comment, I'd love to hear from you. Now, today on the show, Polly is the story of Chris and Sarah, or perhaps it's the story of Chris and Biddy. Or it might even be the story of Chris and Zach, because Chris and his wife have decided to have an open relationship. After years of marriage, Chris and Sarah figure this could be what their relationship needs to stay vital. As they try to be radically open and honest with each other, Chris discovers that jealousy is more than a little difficult to suppress. And while going poly may mean twice the love, Chris is also finding out it's sometimes more than twice the work. Join me as we discover Paul Delgano's Polly. Paul, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, I am absolutely chomping at the bit. I'm so excited to be discussing Polly. I thought we will start with a bit of a content warning for listeners uh, because the conversation by the nature of the book will probably delve into sex, but also mental health issues. And for anyone listening, if you want to tune out, this this might be a good time. But also, if these are things that are present in your life and you need support, you can call Lifeline on 131114. Uh, and with that, with that sort of little note to people, Paul, we'll talk about the fact Polly. So it's the story of, of Chris and Sarah, or perhaps it's the story of Chris and Biddy, or it might even be the story of Chris and Zach, because Chris and his wife have decided to be polyamorous. After years of a nearly sexless marriage, Chris figures this is the way to get something back into their relationship. But while being poly may mean twice the love for Chris, he's also finding out it's sometimes more than twice the work. And what really struck me, Paul, as I, as I read this, you know, the novel that opens with Chris reading a text from Sarah about a, a hookup that she's had at a party, they've agreed to this open relationship. But Chris, he kind of has this refrain throughout that, kind of, that goes something like, this is weird or, or is this weird? Now, open relationships, they, they make up a, a small but still a significant portion of the population. I feel like most of us who who aren't in one, they don't have a reality check or a reference point for these situations. For me, it had the effect of destabilizing my experience of Chris's reality. I didn't I didn't know what to to make of it. Is this is this real? Is this not? I wondered whether you wanted to to start off and give the reader this slight kind of cognitive dissonance. Well, um, I think that's a really good uh, point to come in on, actually, Andrew. Um, I, I think what happens in this type of open relationship, or, or rather what happens before it, is um, there's an element of fantasy involved. So lots of couples, I think, uh, judging by anecdotal evidence and, and real evidence, like the idea or at, at some point in the relationship, particularly a long-term relationship, entertain the idea of seeing other people or having a fling or somehow spicing up their relationship. 
the the big kind of difference between the fantasy and the reality, like all fantasy and all reality, is as, as soon as these things become reality, all of the theoretical or you know heart to hearts that you've had about it, in a way, go out the window. In, in the sense that suddenly you're not dealing with fantasy, you're dealing with real other people with real feelings, real sensitivities, um, whose kind of game plan or idea of how things should work in the world has nothing to do with you as the the dominant couple or the dominant pairing. So um, I think the reality there is that there is a dissonance because what has been built up in, in this case in uh, between Sarah and Chris is an idea of something they will do, an idea of how that will then feed back into their relationship and hopefully strengthen it, maybe make it more exciting. But as soon as that comes up against reality, there's there's a there's a kind of twin thing going on, where the fantasy suddenly crumbles against the the harsh reality of of um, of life and practice. And we we find this as we see the world through Chris's eyes, and I have to note you. You brilliantly and quite uh, anxiety-ridden sort of presentation of Chris. I I found myself alongside him feeling very caught up and and tense, but you present the way Chris wants this to be so much about him and there is a tension where he realises that he does actually have to care for the people in his life, but there are real moments where he just, goes, why can't this be about me? Why can't this be this wonderful, I'm getting all this love and it's very affirming for me? Yeah, that, that's right. And I mean, uh, overall in the book, I think Chris's arc or Chris's story is really one of um, learning to stop trying to control things, um, which is um, in terms of the anxiety or the tension that you mention. I think quite a lot of that actually comes for Chris and, and for a lot of us in the real world from trying to control situations. Um, so you're coming up against this idea of, again, like I said before, you, you want things to be a certain way. And how do you come to terms with the fact that you're not actually the center of the universe? You're not the person, you're just a person. And, and how do you continue? How do you really come to terms with that and find peace with that? And I think it's emerging from the conversation that Chris here, he presents a very interesting figure of masculinity for our modern world. Did you want to challenge through Chris or and, and through the various male characters, but predominantly Chris, what it means to be a man? Yeah, I really did. And um, that's because personally, I, I find that whole area really fascinating. Uh, I think it always has been, but particularly in the last few years, uh, with Me Too and, and preceding Me Too, everything that led up to that moment and everything that's come from it, has really forced me back in on myself to think, what does masculinity mean? But um, also something that was quite influential for me in the process of writing the book was a study that came out in, um, I think, 2017, 2017, uh, um, by the University of Melbourne, where it was a longitudinal study so over four or five years, I think, with 40,000 men in Australia looking at the kind of factors that might lead to suicidal ideation or sadly in some cases suicide and from everything so that there were what we might think of as common factors so um, alcohol uh, abuse or that lots of alcohol drinking basically being single being lonely um, employment instability 
But interestingly, what they found in that study was the number one factor contributing to suicidal ideation and suicide for men was a notion of self-reliance, which is right at the heart of um, how we're socialized as men and how we, I guess, tend to see ourselves as men, that we're self-reliant. So that the classic... Um, you know, it, it's the classic idea, basically, if a man has a problem, they suck it up and they bear it. And, and that very act of bearing it and being seen to bear it and not whine about it is in itself somehow masculine. But the, the, the horrible dark side of that, of course, is uh, we have men walking about all over the place, unable to fe- feeling unable to express what it is that's troubling them or the many things that are troubling them, and then that is ultimately buckling uh, a lot of men and leading to these disastrous outcomes. You've actually just given me a really new perspective on on something that I had been thinking about and that I'd popped in my notes as. As Chris's voice emerges, I found him at least to be a, a very scattershot and unreliable narrator. For most of the book, he's he is either he's he's high, he's coming down, he's hung over. So we have that kind of skewed reality. But it's also this sense that he is desperate to please all of his loves, his family, Biddy, his friends, Zach, and it leaves him vulnerable to ignoring himself. Now, in Chris, we have I think ultimately a very sympathetic. Uh, a very sympathetic character as we we travel with him. But I can see how that would then also go radically wrong, that there could be an iteration of that that need to please and that need to be in control that, that could express itself outward and, and be more manipulative, be more controlling, perhaps be more aggressive, figures that we, we might see as more traditionally patriarchal. Yeah, um you know, Chris is definitely a flawed character, but um, as a reader, more so than a writer, or or maybe equally between the two things, I'm not really interested with internal monologues that present a sanitized version of the world. What I'm interested in is moral ambiguity. So in, in Chris, and actually in a, a few of the characters in the book, what we have are people who are fundamentally good in the sense that they're trying to do the right thing. They care for people, they turn up, they, they do their bit to try and make other people's lives better. But that doesn't, for me, run against the notion of morally questionable behavior. And yes, in Chris's case, for sure, there are, um, going back to the point earlier, there are control issues that he has and all sorts of fears and anxieties that are pushing him to uh, to behave in ways that are questionable. But um, much like people I know in real life, that doesn't disqualify somebody from being a nice person or uh, even getting away from that notion of being a nice person or not a nice person, the whole moral framework. You know, th- these are just people trying to get by um, ethically, if possible, in the world. One of the ways that that goes about, uh, I guess, so we have Chris and Sarah, and and in opening up their relationship, they have to practice, I guess, a kind of radical openness and honesty uh, in the way they they communicate to make that open relationship work. While Chris struggles with this, it also sort of, I, I guess on the surface, it looked like a kind of ideal communication. In some ways, they were they were talking to each other in, in ways that we don't typically think partnerships always always do. I soon realized, though, that this, this level of honesty, it left space, I guess, for even more insidious lies when or or omissions 
when you're telling each other so much, the things that you leave out have so much more portent. Do you think that relationships really do need to communicate everything or is, is it important that there are spaces untouched? And my, my view on that is that all successful relationships require quite a lot of lying um, in the sense of white lying. Um, I mean, it's the classic when you ask your partner or your partner asks you whether your bum looks big in something, you know, the answer is no. And uh, not only is the answer no, it has to be immediate. The, the pause before saying no is as dangerous as uh, saying yes or as, as hurtful. So I, I think there are structures there and ways of being in all relationships that for for kindness sake requires us to lie to, to tell white lies to each other and sim- similar to what i was saying before about the difference between theory and reality th- there's a tension there too where in theory complete honesty between partners is a beautiful thing and um, in a lot of ways I believe in that idea. I believe that the best way to grow in a partnership is to be as radically honest as you can but that's not um, that's not necessarily going to lead to a more friendly or, or feeling of connection with your partner if you actually speak your mind so, so it, it, it's a balance. You really beautifully evoke that in the book and I want to just ask you quickly about that stylistically because you you in some of these conversations are such a close study and you you notice or you you present those ominous pauses did you find was that something that came naturally or was that part of your editing process where you realized some of these tiny tiny moments contained so much that's actually something that I, I almost can't remember how I did it because it was so involved and over so many iterations but one thing that did happen when I was writing the book is the the initial draft I wrote was 180,000 words long, which is just you know ridiculous, uh, way too long. And I think the final version, after many redrafts by me, is at about um, 90,000 words long, more or less. So one of the things I did in that kind of shrinking it down and compressing it was taking what were maybe two or three chapters and kind of squishing them into one chapter. So. In, in some ways, um, with the dialogue and the kinds of things that were being said, they became part of that process too, which was taking out as much as I could without the whole thing falling over and, and just leaving enough for there to be uh, lots of ambiguity and uh, things being misunderstood and um, space in there for not necessarily deception, but people getting the wrong end of the stick as they do in real life. So, yeah, it's a real process, but for sure. I mean, the the most direct answer to your question is I I was looking very, very closely at the dialogue and was aware of what I was trying to achieve in each of of the scenes that's in the book. I mean, I loved the characters. I loved the way they communicated with each other, but I, I don't have that necessarily in all of my relationships. Did you find you were trying to write realistic dialogue or were you going more for something more idealized that helped you realize the story? I was going uh, as realistic as I could. And um, actually, my background is journalism and feature writing. Um, and then I wrote a memoir, as you, as you mentioned in the introduction. And throughout all of that, dialogue isn't a huge focus, but, but it is in there. So you've got your editing down quotes, you know, um, as you would know in your line. If you transcribe a one-hour interview, it's going to be about three or 4,000 words, maybe more, which you then need to pick out 
600 words for your thousand word article, which leaves a bit of room for analysis and introduction and things. So there's always a process of trying to pick out in uh, nonfiction and trying to pick out the pertinent bits of a conversation or the pertinent ways of capturing something in a, in a small amount of space. And for this book, it's way more dialogue driven than anything I've done before. And that was one of the big skilling up uh, things I had to do in writing. It was actually learning how to make that dialogue happen. So um, quite a lot of it might have sounded wooden in the first couple of drafts. And my, my process there was to keep reading it out loud and getting other people to read it out loud to me and just trying to, um, th th the same as in nonfiction writing, trying to get something that worked well on the page, but also sounded like things people would actually say, um, which isn't necessarily that easy. You know, sometimes, um, uh, again, when you're working off of a transcription, when you actually see what people say in spoken language, it doesn't often make that much sense. Uh, in written language, it doesn't work on the page. So there's always this slight kind of polishing and turning things around until they until they sit just the right way. So yeah, a, a process of a discovery, I guess, with the dialogue. All, all killer and no filler, I guess, is, is sort of where it comes in, and and I know exactly what you mean. I've I've taken um, when I'm when I'm preparing, even say for you, my conversation with you, I'll have the, my book in one hand, and I'll try and dictate notes or questions into my phone. And I realise that natural speak is is nothing like the even the more polished a question that will make sense to you as as an interlocutor. None of that comes from us just rambling off the top of our heads. So I mean. It, it, Kudos to what you have achieved through uh, those conversations in the book. Uh, so the need for love and affirmation, that runs throughout. Each of the characters has their moments where they are feeling they need more love, they need affirmation. And I found this was really beautifully highlighted in the juxtaposing of scenes between Chris's kids, Sophie and Oliver, who sort of seem to suffer a little a bit at um, the vagaries of all the relationships around them, but through juxtaposition of those scenes with those of the adults and how the behaviours are often darkly and dark and hilarious in their similarity. Did you find, was this a, a regular human frailty, this almost juvenile behaviour, or was it perhaps something darker? In terms of the need for affirmation, yeah, whether did you find? I mean, one of the features of this book is that we have Chris is forty or recently forty, and um, Sarah Sarah has a birthday during the book, and there is a sense that part of this is spurred on by an an understanding and an acknowledgement of their age, and perhaps their behaviours are are taking them back to a younger time, and that that really shone through when we saw their reactions. And the reactions of, of Sophie and Oliver, who are, I guess, allowed to be a little bit more juvenile and childlike, given that they are juvenile children? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that that idea of ageing and the the ever-growing awareness of mortality is definitely threaded throughout the book. Um, but one of the key drivers of the entire story is um, an old extramarital relationship that Sarah had with a man called Nikau, who who took his own life a couple of years before the book started. Chris 
uh, regularly throughout the book laments the fact that his mum uh, died a couple of years ago, and and both of them, I think, as a couple, um, as you say, they've they've both recently turned forty. They've been living in this world of raising children and not seeing anyone, not going out anywhere for eight or nine years. And I think, yeah, they, they both do have a very strong driver within them to somehow cling on to life and to cling on to the the kind of vital, the vital side of life before the before the lights darken, as it were. It's interesting. Um, I feel like every book this year I'm reading in a different way. And I mean, you, you very much, you show us a Melbourne that looks nothing like Melbourne at the moment. And I can't help but wonder how Chris and Sarah would be doing at the moment, because so much of, so much of what their world is about is, is about being in, in it, in the world. A book like Polly just simply wouldn't be possible right now. I know it's a strange reality, really, that what, to me felt like a, a kind of almost standard description of a certain kind of life in Melbourne now feels um, impossibly nostalgic in a way. I mean, the very idea of going out to a nightclub and, you know, rubbing up against other sweaty people, etc., um, you know, it just seems impossible. It feels like a dream from another another world. And obviously at the time of writing it, like, like everyone's books, as you mentioned, that have come out this year, there was just no sense that this would happen, that the world would change so completely, so quickly. So, yeah, it is a, it, it, I mean, I guess like anything that anybody writes, it, it becomes a time capsule whether you want it to or not. So, you know, lots of writers are, are sitting there thinking their piece is going to be timeless and, you know, going to reflect these themes. And then as this year has shown, you know, that the, the it's not just that the book ages, the entire world changes and, and everything you're talking about or showing in, in any piece of literature just inevitably becomes marked by its time. Mm, it, it also sort of showed to me just then as we were talking about it, this these two different ways of communicating, one of which isn't open to us anymore. I mean, so much of, of Sarah's relationships throughout the novel are instigated through physicality. Um, she has, she definitely has an attraction for men when she's dancing because partly, I guess she is a former dancer. That's a big mode of expression for her, but also it seems like, you know, this is happening at clubs. This is happening, um, around DJs and it's just, it just wouldn't be possible. It really, again, throws to the fore this idea of that verbal communication, that openness that we were discussing earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think Sarah in particular would be struggling throughout this period. Um, Chris and Biddy, who um, are, are pretty much solid, I think, as the book goes on, I think they'd, they'd actually be managing okay. And I think those two and Sarah collectively would be managing okay. But yeah, in terms of going out dancing in nightclubs and uh, meeting cool DJs, that's, um, that's sadly on pause for now. The need for love and the lengths that the characters will go to. You also highlight this, I think, in a really careful placing of a beautiful hardback edition of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And here, here is the dark heart and perhaps one of the most thrilling aspects of Polly, which I will most assuredly not be revealing. But I wanted, if you could just in general terms, talk to me about weaving psychological thrills and and leaving little intertextual clues in in your work yeah um i i 
I really can't remember who said this, so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shame in some ways. But um, I think it was maybe Nabokov. But some somebody at some point said that you don't read a book the first time you read it; you read it the second time you read it. So the first time is really to map out the whole area, and you get a sense of the story, and you follow it along. But then, if you enjoy that book and you go back and read it again, if the writer's done um, done the job, as you said, of kind of leaving things around, you'll actually find a, a, a different story, a richer story. And in this case, for for sure, by the time people get to the end of the book, were they to read it again, uh, absolutely for certain, they're going to find things in there that they didn't the first time around. And part of that is with. Chris being all the things we've already discussed, you know, so slightly self-obsessed, completely exhausted, giving his time to everyone else and not to himself and suffering the consequences, et cetera, et cetera. It's really in a lot of ways a book about distraction. So Chris is our unreliable narrator. I mean, he, he's reliably Chris, but then is is Chris actually um, seeing the world in a reliable way? And probably not because he's completely distracted uh, at every single moment of the book, which allows me then as the writer to have dropped in lots of things there that um, as a reader, if you were to go back through and look at the story again, you would say, oh, these are the things Chris are missing because they're there. They're there in some ways really obviously in the book. It's just that Chris himself doesn't see it. And therefore, as the reader, you're not getting a kind of commentary on that happening all the way through. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely there on purpose. And, um, yeah, I guess that's just part of the part of the way the novel's put together. And just most fantastically, too, is when Chris almost sees it. And I think you did that. You do that a couple of times where Chris sort of has that moment of tilt your head and go, what? And then just goes back because you say he's so overworked. He is so, so fraught. Um, he is, he is an absolutely frightening character in that sense, because I, as I read, I could recognize times when I have allowed myself to get that way as well. And you think this looks painful and uncomfortable from outside how 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 could I have ever been in that sort of space where you're overworked, you're not prioritizing the right things? The the psychology of Chris is just really uh, uncomfortably but wonderfully realized. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> was, I mean, that was one of the um one of the things I found just um as I began to read Polly. I went through went through such a journey with this book, and it took me a good hundred odd pages before I realized it was absolutely not the book I thought I was reading. Um, and I'm going very off the cuff here. Um, but in my notes, I had big, big questions and question marks around the fact that you were weaving this tale of a polyamorous relationships. So there were so many female characters that were important to Chris, but we were only hearing them through Chris's ears and through Chris's perspective. And I thought, this is such a great book. Paul needs to give us those perspectives. It's too one-sided. And then I went, ah, there's a reason. There, there is a very good reason why that's happening. <laughs> and then I then I sort of went down a, that different rabbit hole and I was just sort of constantly kind of white-knuckling what was going to happen because I could see just to the next bend, but not beyond it, if, if that analogy works. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, somebody that read the book quite early on uh, made a similar point that um, it would have been lovely to get the uh, perspectives of the two female leads, for want of a better word, the two major female characters. And um, it's kind of specifically for what you're touching on there that it it just wouldn't have worked. I mean, the, the book, from my point of view, relies on us being as much as possible inside Chris's flawed, jumbled up head to... Um, to allow for the fact that um, while Chris is attributing motivation on um, the the female characters, he doesn't actually know. He doesn't really know what it is they're thinking. Um, Just as in real life, we don't know what other people are really thinking. Uh, And I I think that's quite important in the book. I don't think the book would have worked if, um, as as the writer, I I was trying to give kind of three different perspectives on this. Yeah, I think I mean perhaps for any potential reader a good a good clue to the reading is in the cover which is you know it's it's this vivid red matchbox on this uh, I don't know how to describe the pink but all all I can th- say is that it mu- this must just pop in bookstores but there's also something about that pink I'm just like it's it's vivid but I could that possibly occur in nature? It's a little bit, little bit heightened, a little bit larger than life, just like Chris's sort of sensations and view of the world. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, Josh Durham, who designed the cover, did just an incredible um, job with it. That's uh, designed by committee is the the company. And um, if, if you look through Josh's Instagram feed, you'll just see many, many covers uh, of, of great Australian books that pop. So, yeah, I was very lucky that he um, agreed to do this and did such an amazing job of um, capturing so much with such a minimalist cover. I'm glad we went down that tangent. It's so very, very seldom that I get to you know delve into the graphic design and how that links to the text. <laughs> I am speaking with Paul Dalgano and his novel is Polly. Uh, if you have got anything from this conversation, it is that Polly is a constantly surprising book that is, is well worth your time. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Uh, thank you, Andrew. I, I love uh, your readings and your insights on the book. That's really gratifying for me too. That's it for this great conversation with Paul Dalgano. Paul's new novel is Polly, and it's out now through Ventura Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia, and I'm recording at home on Darug and Gundungurra land. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, we are on all the socials. Find us at Final Draft 2SER on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you subscribe, you will get a new podcast, a new Great Conversations podcast every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.